It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Coronavirus Update. If you're in lockdown, just like me, don't worry. I've put together some of the best bits from my talk radio breakfast show into this daily podcast so you won't miss any of the day's biggest coronavirus updates. Enjoy. And stay safe. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Well, let's uh, talk about all that now with the Health Minister, Edward Argar, who joins us right now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Good morning to you. Um, now, um, this, we've just been talking about this this row over the issue of care homes. Um, who said what? Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, in their letters and what happened at PMQs. And again, I don't think most people care about a lot of the nuances of that. I think that's irrelevant. I think what is relevant, though, is who on earth thought it was a remotely good or indeed sane idea to discharge elderly patients from hospitals uh, throughout this, including up to early and mid-March, without testing them for coronavirus or making sure they were quarantined when they went into care homes. Who made that decision? Well, firstly, I think you're right. What the vast majority of people will be looking at is exactly exactly that. Care homes, a concern um, for people in care homes and also deep sympathies for all those who've lost friends or family in care homes and beyond. Um, What we did in terms of uh, the NHS and care homes from the start of this, when we look back to February, um, we were seeing those pictures, which you will remember and others will remember, from Italy of hospitals overwhelmed, unable to treat people from the community or from care homes because the capacity they had to treat people with COVID had been uh, completely breached. One of the key priorities we set was to ensure that the NHS always had that capacity to treat people from care homes and from the community and that the NHS would not, if want a better way of putting it, fall over due to a lack of capacity. And we have achieved that. In the context of care homes, um, the, the row yesterday or the debate yesterday is important in one sense because um, the letter or the guidance that Keir Starmer quoted dated from the um, 25th of February and this is when we were still in the contained phase and the scientific evidence was that there was no or very, there was no community transmission i.e. commission transmission from within a hospital to the community or within the community it was still being contained to a relatively small number of people who'd been traced and were being contained that changed um, on around the 13th and I, I'm conscious of that because I was self-isolating having yeah. had close contact with someone that's when the guidance came in which changed it the context is therefore very important to what was said yesterday um and from that date care homes um were advised a much stricter set of criteria about who should and shouldn't go into those care homes and what you've seen since 
is that as soon as the capacity for testing was significantly ramped up, we need to remember at the start of this, the UK, unlike, say, Germany, didn't have huge labs and commercial operations based in that in our country who were supplying these tests. So we've had to ramp it up rapidly. As soon as we were able to have the capacity to test everyone, we've done so from April. But at the start, the focus was on those key NHS workers for the testing yeah, that we had before at the time. Yeah, but of course, now we understand why the testing was, we understand why there was, a, this has been explained to us before, hasn't it, by your, yeah. by your boss and others, that, uh, yeah, we didn't have the testing capacity. We all know that. However, not having the testing capacity to have hundreds of thousands of tests of people in the community is one thing from just only testing NHS workers. The point of testing NHS workers was they could be spreading it around the hospital. We know that hospitals was where a lot of the virus was spreading and is continuing to spread. Therefore, uh, testing people who are being discharged from hospital might perhaps be a sensible idea if they can't be quarantined at home and they are being sent into care home uh, situations. Uh, that does not explain that decision. I've asked you once again, who made the decision to discharge thousands of elderly patients, we understand the need to get rid of you know, the bed blockers, from the hospitals without having them tested or requiring absolute quarantine for two weeks beforehand. Was it the health secretary? Was it the NHS chiefs, Sir Simon Stevens? Was it individual hospital trust chiefs? Because every single person there is on a very nice six-figure salary and they're supposed to know what they're doing and they didn't because I don't have any health expertise whatsoever, but I can tell you, I know that that decision, not just with hindsight, but that decision then was insane and stupid. Who made those decisions and, and, and when are they going to actually apologise for it? Well, excuse me, firstly, I wouldn't, and I, I know what you did, but I wouldn't use the word bed blocker. There were people who were in hospital. No, I know you wouldn't. Okay, leave that aside. That's, um, but the, in terms of issue. your substantive point, your main point there... The decisions were taken, NHS England taking the decision that in order to ensure that uh, we had the capacity in the NHS acute trust in hospitals, that there would be a programme of managed discharges of people. No, we know that. We know that. So so it was the Simon Stevens. NHS England took that decision on how to manage that process. Individual trusts and individual clinicians will have taken decisions in discharging patients on what was safe and what was not. And I'm not going to get into the clinical decisions that they will have made. But your fundamental point is, were we able to or could we have tested everyone at that point who was being discharged? And the reality, as I said, that the capacity in testing, while it's been significantly ramped up, was not there at that time. Even at that time, you didn't have the capacity, even though we had known since January and certainly from early February, we are talking about mid-March at this point, even though at that point there hadn't been the ability to ramp up testing, other countries had managed to do so. And it's not just Germany, many other countries had managed to do so as well. Many other countries did do that, but equally, if you look at other European countries, France, Spain, Italy, they experienced similar challenges, and they've been clear about that. I think it was um, possibly Belgium, who uh, I heard one of their ministers or one of their commentators speaking just a couple of days ago about experience, as did France, exactly a similar situation in their co-homes to what we have seen here. That's not an excuse. That's not saying that it's right. But I'm saying this is a challenge that has been faced across Europe in terms of ramping up testing, but also in the impact we've seen on care homes across Europe. The Guardian is reporting today that council social care directors warned the government a number of reports as early as two years ago that they were not prepared for a pandemic and they wouldn't have enough PPE and that uh, they'd been under investment and the total failure to prepare. What do you say to that? Well, this is, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is the um, Association of Directors of Adult Social Services in 2018 who did some work on this. Yes. And they are 
they're a great organisation. I worked for many years ago. I was cabinet member for social care um, on a council when I was back as a councillor. They did great work and they highlight strategic as well as, as immediate issues. Those reports were looked at very carefully. A lot of what was in them was not just about immediate. A lot of it was about longer term. How do you reform the system? What do you do uh, in terms of the future of social yes, care? That, did that, did those reports at any point say we're not prepared, we won't have enough PPE, and was any action they, taken? Those reports will, of course, have highlighted and did where we could do better, Is that either in terms of resilience, in terms of PPE, or was in any terms action taken? of... It. And we have, we've continued to ramp up the stockpile. We did have the stockpiles of PPE, which we continued to ramp up. Social care remains a great challenge and has been for all parties and all governments. It's one we need to face up to in the long term. But we did listen to those reports. We always listen to organisations like ADAS and we do put in place further measures to support care homes when we get those recommendations, Julia. Look, let's, let's look at something a bit more positive. The antibody test that's been approved, it's a, developed by Roche in Switzerland. Public Health England say it's a, it got the go-ahead. Could be 100% accurate. It's just a finger prick blood test. Um, we understand the, the health department now in a, a, talks about buying millions of those tests. How quickly can that be rolled out? And what difference will that make to the uh, easing of the lockdown? Well, you're right in highlighting the importance of this. I think it was probably about a month ago I came on your show and we were talking about um, where we'd got to with this. And sadly, the tests that had been uh, tested at that time hadn't been reliable enough. And I remember, I think it was the chief medical officer saying, uh, a bad test is worse than no test in this context. So it's really positive news that we, um, PHE, have, are giving the green light to a test that they think is reliable and will give people that assurance whether they've had the virus or not. Now, the level of immunity that gives you is still um, being scientifically debated, but it looks like it does give you a, uh, a level of immunity. Those negotiations are currently going on at pace with Roche. I'm not going to say too much about those because I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to compromise those and I want those to conclude as swiftly as we possibly can to get those tests rolled out. And when we do roll them out, I think it's important that they go to the front line first, NHS workers, care home workers, to make sure they know whether they've had the test and whether they can uh, safely keep working. Because you ask what the impact of this is, what the positive of this is, what on the basis of our understanding of the immunity it gives at the moment, having had the viruses, it looks like those staff will then be able to safely carry on working without, let's say on the basis of the current science, without worrying that they will get the virus again or be able to pass it on to others in their care. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Yesterday, we heard a new figure showing the economy shrank by 2% in the first three months of 2020, bearing in mind it only involved about a week or so of the formal lockdown. But that is, and this is a terrifying stat, it is the fastest pace contraction since the banking crash in 2008. Well, let's talk about how we deal with a significant recession coming. That's what Chancellor Rishi Sunak has warned about with a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lord Norman Lamont. Good morning to you. Hello, hi. Good morning. morning. Well, you were Conservative Chancellor 1990 to 93. You dealt with a recession. We saw a huge recession at that time. I remember it very vividly because I was coming out of university, which is why I uh, have particular concerns about our young people right now. 7.5 million people furloughed, a quarter of the workforce. uh, The Institute of Fiscal Studies is saying uh, possibly an £80 billion end of the cost for all of the help for businesses and employees and the self-employed and the like. Um, How do we avoid a significant recession lasting for years rather than months? Well, I don't think we can avoid a recession. A recession has obviously already started. Um, Not only did we have the decline in the uh, first quarter that you mentioned, but after that, the figure came out that the economy had declined by over 4% in March alone. So I think we're clearly on a downward uh, trend. Uh, This is happening throughout the world. Uh, I think in the short term, the government has got to let borrowing take the strain, and the borrowing figures are going to be immense. Again, this is going to be true in every country. Britain is not going to be unique in this. So the question will be, can governments retain the confidence of financial markets in funding the deficit? And, you know, provided... Uh, our deficit does not seem uh, way out of line. I think Britain is going to be able to get through this, but I think what we want to avoid in the short run would be fiscal measures, be they tax increases or cuts in expenditure, to try to reduce the deficit. In the short term, the deficit will have to take the strain. Borrowing will have to take the strain. And we're, we're going to borrow our way out of it. Now, and this is where now, this I'm not, is. Diff- I'm not saying borrow our way out of it forever. But no. I'm saying in the short run, we've got to let it take the strain. But this is different from the magic money tree of just spend, spend, spend uh, without putting taxes up for, for across the board uh, and, and just setting that as a normal uh, mode of, uh, of how we operate. Isn't it? That is different from that. Lots of people are suggesting this should be treated as, as a wartime debt. I think we're still technically paying off some of our World War II debt, are we not? Do, do we, is, that, is that how it should be treated? And given the fact that virtually every other country in the Western world is going to be in a similar situation, it well, to a I certain extent cancels itself war- out? I think the analogy with the war is perhaps not the best one because the the Second World War left Britain bankrupt and fundamentally altered Britain's position in the world. It was the cost of the war that really uh, reduced Britain's standing and left America as the most powerful country in in the world. 
Um, but I think it is right that this is an exceptional event worldwide. And our good fortune is that interest rates are zero, or in some cases, in some countries, actually negative. So countries can borrow without huge additional costs. And what people have to look at is the cost of the borrowing each year rather than just the deficit. But as I say, my view, and I think this is quite widely shared, is that in the short run, the important thing is to get the recovery going. That's not going to be easy. You know, I don't think there's going to be a, a bounce back personally. I don't think there's going to be a sharp bounce back very quickly. I think it will be gradual. And because it's gradual, um, alas, sadly, some jobs will have been lost in, along the way and some firms will have gone out of business. And that's the concern, isn't it, about how quick we get back to some semblance of normal life and a normal economic life. Uh, there's been a lot of talk that, OK, it's, a, it's certainly a V-shape going down into the recession. The hopes that it could be a V-shape coming back up again uh, and not a very long, slow recovery we saw after the 2008 banking crash. Why should this be any different, though? Why should it not be a long, very slow uh, uh, recovery? Well, I, I'm inclined to think it will be a rather slow. I don't think it will be a sharp V-shaped recovery because th th there will be a section of the economy that only comes out of this very slowly. Anything to do with interacting with people at close distance is going to find life very difficult, whether it's in the hospitality industry, hotels, restaurants, airlines, airports, transport. These can't come out of it quickly because we're going to have restrictions on uh, how close we can be to people for some time. And it's just not possible for those firms and industries, those firms in those industries, actually to be profitable and to remain in business. So they will come out of it, I think, last and very slowly. I mean, imagine an economy that maybe bounces back as regards 90%, but 10% of businesses will still be finding life very difficult. Indeed, and that, that is the concern, isn't it? A lot of the people currently furloughed, 7.5 million people, uh, they're having 80% of their wages up to uh, two and a half grand a month, but uh, it's all been extended to the end of October. We know that a lot of businesses were planning to make those many of the people in their businesses redundant uh, if the furlough scheme didn't uh, continue. Is there an argument that actually we are simply just putting off the inevitable for a lot of people at the taxpayers' expense? Well, I think in one sense we are delaying the inevitable, but I think it's right to delay it because it gives businesses time to adjust. Uh, I was talking about the dis difficulty of running businesses with social distancing. If you're furloughing some of the labor force to work part-time, you can perhaps run your business for a while with social distancing, even if you can't run it normally with social distancing. So buying time is quite valuable, but when the scheme comes to an end, I fear, alas, I'm sorry to say this, that there will be a sharp increase in unemployment. I mean, in the United States, unemployment has gone very quickly from 3% to somewhere between 15 and 20%, and I think that's going to be the experience of many countries. Um, and in terms of, uh, of, of how we do deal with that, as, as you said, you want to think we should avoid tax rises and spending cuts uh, and, and borrow for that. And very different, of course, from what was done by the, the coalition government under David Cameron and, uh, and Theresa May in terms of austerity. Uh, that will feed the arguments of the Labour Party and other critics that austerity in those years was a choice. In 2010 years, it was a choice for the Tories to uh, make those massive public sector cuts. Is that right? 
Well, I think the situation was different in 2008 for this reason, that interest rates were higher, the costs of borrowing were, were higher. It's true that they were lower than they had been, that they are higher compared to today. Today, I mean, there are some countries in the world where interest rates are actually negative. Uh, people are paying governments uh, to, 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 to borrow. Uh, if that's the situation, you know, obviously it does make sense to, to borrow, but uh, probably interest rates are going to remain around zero for some, some time. Um, the risk of, of borrowing is you might suddenly find interest rates do go up because there are so many governments throughout the world that are borrowing large sums of money. I mean, we, I saw a forecast that thought the average ratio of debt to GDP in developed countries, the average would be around 150%. I mean, that Ouch. is higher than Italy today, and that's an average for all the advanced industrial countries. But, but, but you know, that means people will look Britain at Britain and say, well, is Britain in a better position, a worse position, or the same position as other people? Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Fresh guidelines issued by the College of Policing and the National Police Chiefs Council yesterday have urged officers only to enforce what is written in law and police officers have been told they have no powers to enforce the two-metre social distancing rule in England. Different rules, by the way, do apply in different parts of the United Kingdom. But let's talk about this with the Chair of the Police Federation, John Apter. Good morning to you, John. Good morning, Julia. Morning. I look, I mean, th- there's been a very big uh, sort of row uh, over the lockdown period about the policing of the lockdown and mm-hmm. whether or not the uh, the police have the right to police um, government guidance as opposed to what mm-hmm. is in the legislation. For instance, the one-hour uh, um, exercise out a day limit, that's only guidance. There's never been a legal restriction on people uh, spending more time out of their home uh, exercising and the like. But I suppose the social distancing rule is something that mm-hmm. I think people were feeling was being uh, policed uh, and enforced by the police, uh, but apparently no powers whatsoever to do so. Is it better that the police officers actually have that information and know that for sure? Yeah, it's always the case, Julia, that whenever you have legislation, there will all be, always be guidance that runs alongside it. And the guidance is not only for police officers, but it's also for the public. And it was true that in the, in the first part of this crisis, so before the legislation was changed, um, police officers were not stopping vehicles and asking how long have you been out or yeah. asking people how long have you been out walking. And even then, it was very difficult to enforce. The main things we were looking at there was groups of more than two people, uh, not from the same household. And we were engaging and explaining exactly what the, the police bosses have asked us to do about saying to people about your social distance. But I've been very clear, and you know, some of the mixed messages, excuse me, some of the mixed messages were deeply unhelpful because it was putting my colleagues, the police officers who were out there on the front line, in a difficult position of trying to do what they felt was best for, for this health crisis. But you're right, we police the legislation, and that's what's enforceable. And what we've seen now, uh, since since yesterday, since Wednesday, it was yesterday, Wednesday, I've lost track of the day. Yeah, I did, um, haven't we all, yes. <laughs> I know. Um, every day feels like a weekend at the moment. But it's um, since the legislation's been changed, then in reality, there is, policing has almost taken a step back because there's, there's not as much for the police officers to enforce it. And of course, there will be situations when certainly house parties or larger gatherings um, where the police could get involved, whether we're called to it or we find it. 
But in effect, people can be out and about um, uh, you know, as long as it's reasonable excuse within the legislation as much as they uh, need yeah. to be. And what I, how I've described it is this is about the police handing that baton of responsibility to the public and saying, come on, public, use your common sense. Let's all be in this together and look out for each other. And the police will step in when there are clear breaches. But well, that, that's it. It's when there are clear breaches. That's absolutely. the key point. And that's where the public, and this is, you know, the government have got a really big part to play. So have the police, um, but the government uh, introduced the legislation. It's, it's absolutely essential that it is crystal clear as to what the public can and can't do. And I think it's, I think it's better now, um, but it was really bad. And it was my colleagues who were getting the brunt of that, uh, which is why yeah. you saw some unfortunate situations around the country. Well, you say unfortunate. There were a few chief constables and some uh, PCs who, frankly, didn't know the law. I mean, I bothered to read the actual regulations um, because I was going to talk about it on air repeatedly. Um, I found it extraordinary that police officers, including a chief constable, uh, didn't bother reading the regulations, telling people, you know, we're going to be starting checking what people have got in their baskets. And and I mean, I have to say, if he tried that with me, uh, he'd been given very short shrift. But it is interesting. The original regulations brought in on March the 26th, that was the Thursday, wasn't it? We we, we were told on the Monday by, uh, by Boris Johnson we we're going to go into lockdown but it was not until the Thursday it came into law and there was an amendment this Wednesday, yesterday neither of them actually state that you have to keep two metres apart as a legal requirement. No. This though is different in Wales, just so everyone's clear it, the two metre social distancing is enforceable by police officers in Wales however, yeah. Welsh councils not police officers are responsible for making sure there is social distancing in workplaces so it gets even more complicated there but a lot of this is about common sense isn't it but I think a lot of people still quite sure the fact that even under the current regulations you are still not allowed to leave or be outside your home without a reasonable excuse now that reasonable excuse now includes i'm exercising now you, your exercise can just be walking so realistically you can be outside your home anytime you want for any length of time you want um uh, with one other person from outside your household at any time so we do to that extent have freedom but are you still seeing though that actually despite these extra freedoms and we've seen you know an increase in some use of public transport most people are still staying at home and i have to say i have haven't changed anything that I've done this week. No. I'm still working from home. I'm going out to the supermarket. I'm going out for my daily walk. But that's it. No, absolutely. Julia, if you'll just allow me, I just want to go back very briefly to what you said about some of the uh, errors that were made by policing. Yeah. In context, we were in a state of crisis. I, I mean, we still are um, very much in a state of crisis. There was a lot of panic from the public. We were being inundated with calls from the public. Um, talking about breaches that were going on. Police officers were doing the best they could. And there were, and it was only a handful of... No, I know it was only a handful, but those police officers weren't doing the best they could. They were, they were being unprofessional. I don't, well, no, I don't I, think I, we can make an excuse. No, I don't make excuses. We, I don't make excuses for a state of panic. I don't make excuses. If officers don't know their job, they shouldn't be no, in the it, job. Whether you're a chief constable or a PC, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't make excuses for people like that. No, I, I don't think it's a willful ignorance of, of the law, Julia. Yes, it was, because no, 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 no. when a WPC is telling a man his kids can't play outside in their own front garden, that is a willful ignorance of the law, because yeah, it was I'm very not, clear that was allowed within the law. No, and, and, and you'll appreciate that that was dealt with. Um, yeah. But it was just about putting it into context. But you're right with what you say. People can go out. It's not only for exercise, it's for your mental well-being. So if yeah. people want to sunbathe and so on, then they can. And that's a matter for government with the legislation. Yeah. My colleagues, you know, they're not going round and never have with tape measures measuring two metres no. apart. And the difficulty now with Wales and Scotland who have different 
legislation in place makes policing even more difficult. Um, but you, you're right, I think many people haven't changed their ways. They're waiting for government to start making some other decisions. You know, the schools are still closed and other places are still closed. Um, but there are more and more people out and about, and I understand yeah. the economy has to start moving. And we are doing the best we can to reassure people because there's a lot of people out there who are scared. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to today's Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. Please don't forget to like, comment, and most importantly, subscribe. And you can catch me live on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 till 10. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.